guess what week it is. Um, it is the first week of Halloween. No, specifically it's, today is Halloween second. No, it's it's the second week of Halloween because we have two episodes coming up. I don't know. I'm not looking at the schedule right now, but it's Bundy week. It is Bundy week. That's and this that's is all you culture. wanted from me, wasn't it? That's yes. all you wanted. You just <laughs> wanted me to. Okay. And this is crime culture. It is. And, and I'm Haley. And I'm dumb. A little bit. A little bit. It's it's okay. I have many blonde moments. This is one of them. Yeah. But no, I'm Caitlin. The blonde, as we've established. Yes. Yes. And uh, like we said, it's Bundy week. I'm super stoked. Why are you super stoked? Because Bundy is my favorite. I know. We'll get into like little pieces of it, but like I remember the first time that I heard, like I everyone knows like the name Ted Bundy. If you know anything about true crime, then you like have heard of like the top like heavy hitters, like the most prolific serial killers. You know Bundy, but uh, I remember the first time I heard like the full story, and I literally like heard it like with my jaw on the floor i was like holy shit how did he get away with all of this shit it's insane i thought you were gonna be like i heard it with my own two ears i did and i, heard I did it with i my did in ears. fact hear it with my own two ears i mean that's right, always so good. to avoid this being a black mirror situation uh we want it to be a two-parter it's going to be very long so strap in but we're just gonna jump right into it because this is a long one. So anyway. Buckle up, buttercups. <clears throat> All right. So Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th, 1946 to Eleanor Louise Cowell, who went by Louise for most of her life, at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. And his father's identity was never really determined. Um, his birth certificate says that um, the, his father is a salesman and Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall, but Louise later claimed that she had been seduced by a quote-unquote sailor, whose name may have been Jack Worthington, although many years later investigators would find no record of anyone by that name in the Navy or Merchant Marines archives. And some well, I mean, family yeah. members... Yeah. You fuck someone and you give them the wrong name. Hell, <laughs> That's I very give them true. the wrong name at Starbucks so dudes don't fucking approach me. That's true. Um, But even weirder, uh, some family members suspected that Ted might have been fathered by Louise's own violent, abusive father, Samuel Cowell, but no material evidence has ever been cited to support or refute this. So it's it's never been confirmed or denied. It's just speculated on, which is creepy. So for the first three years of his life, Ted lived in Philadelphia, um, his maternal grandparents' home, that would be Samuel and Eleanor Cowell, who raised him as their son to avoid the social stigma that accompanied birth outside of wedlock at the time. And this is actually the same situation that happened to Jack Nicholson. I, I remember this now. Yeah, he was raised to believe that uh, his mother was his sister. Yep. Some weird shit. So and it goes fam- one way or the other. Either you become an Oscar winner or a serial killer. Or a killer. serial killer. <laughs> Family and friends and even Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his mother was his older sister. He eventually discovered the truth, although even that story has weird circumstances uh, 
connected to it. Some people believe one thing, how he learned, and another thing. And some people think that this is the catalyst, and there's a lot of speculation on this case. And um, he had told a girlfriend that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate, calling him a quote-unquote bastard, but he told biographers Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth that he found the certificate himself. Why his cousin would have a copy of his birth certificate? Weird, but... Uh, I'm, I mean, I maybe safekeeping. Yeah, I don't think that would happen. And nah. um, biographer and true crime writer Anne Rule, who knew Bundy personally from his time as a phone operator at the crisis hotline in Seattle, which we'll talk about in a second, believed that he did not find out until 1969 when he located his original birth record in Vermont. Ted expressed a lifelong resentment towards his mother for never talking to him about his real father and for leaving him to discover his true parentage for himself. Um, in some interviews, uh, Ted spoke warmly of his grandparents and told Anne Rule that he identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather. In 1987, he and other family members told attorneys that Samuel Cowell was a tyrannical bully and a bigot who hated blacks, Italians, Catholics, and Jews. So at this point, oh, who does he it? like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Who, who oh, do you like all? if you hate all those people? I um, mean... I don't Ted's, know. Ted's grandfather beat his wife and the family dog and swung neighborhood cats <gasps> by their tails. No. Just a bastard. real great guy. Like, I mean, okay, okay, okay. You hate your wife. We've been there. We understand. But, like, the dogs. Yeah, what did he and do? And the kitties. What did they do? Yeah. And <laughs> another weird thing. Um, he sometimes spoke aloud to unseen presences, and at least once he flew into a violent rage when the question of Ted's paternity was raised. Um, he also once threw Louise's younger sister, Julia, down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. That's normal. That seems yeah. like a worthy punishment for... Yeah, he sounds like a, a great guy. I mean, um, I think he's just a true disciplinarian, Haley. I don't think that he means any harm. He's yeah, just right? teaching them a lesson. Yeah. Uh, Ted described What's his... the worst that could happen? He becomes a serial killer? Like, I mean, what? Nothing. No, that wasn't Ted. That was his uh No, I mean, his grandfather. being exposed to that? What's the yeah, worst right? that could happen? Because, I mean, it's weird because he's not his grandfather. He's also, like, it's weird for him because he thinks he's his dad. So it's like, what do we really call him? Yeah, that's true. It's it's um, a it's a funky situation. He might be his actual dad. We don't know. Yeah, like, creepy. Um, but Ted described shades. his grandmother as timid and obedient, and who periodically went electroconvulsive therapy for depression, and she even feared leaving the house towards the end of her life. Uh, well, I would fear anything if I had to live with. I'd, I'd be afraid to go into the house with that yeah, dude right? there. Are you kidding me? Like the outside Maybe it was like world a is the least syndrome of your problems. Thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's he's swinging cats by their tails here. Like, this is not yeah. home well, sweet home. Uh, Ted himself occasionally exhibited disturbing behavior, even at an early age. Julia recalled waking up from a nap one day to find herself surrounded by knives from the cowl kitchen. And her three-year-old nephew, Ted, was standing by the bed and smiling. Just some regular three-year-old activity. Just some good clean fun. Yeah, just having access to various knives and placing not, them around it's sleeping people. Than Legos. Why not? It's the early Legos. Exactly. 
1950, Louise abruptly changed her surname from Cowell to Nelson, and at the urging of multiple family members, she left Philadelphia with her son to live with her cousins Alan and Jane Scott in Tacoma, Washington. In 1951, Louise met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, a hospital cook, at an adult singles night in Tacoma's First Methodist Church. They married later that year, and Johnny Bundy formally adopted Ted. Johnny and Louise conceived four children of their own, and although Johnny tried to include his adoptive son in camping trips and other family activities, Ted remained distant. He later complained to a girlfriend that Johnny wasn't his real father and, quote, wasn't very bright and didn't make much money, end quote. Uh, Ted had... (laughs) Yeah, it's a great way to judge somebody that's trying to be your dad when you had none. Good. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Ted had different recollections. Uh, Ted had different recollections of Tacoma when he spoke to biographers. When he talked to Michaud and Ainsworth, he described how he roamed his neighborhood, picking through trash barrels in search of pictures of naked women. When he spoke to Polly Nelson, he ex- explained how he perused detective magazines, crime novels, and true crime documentaries for stories that involved sexual violence, particularly when the stories were illustrated with pictures of dead or maimed bodies. Quaint. Uh, In a letter to Anne Rule, he asserted that he, quote, never ever read fact detective magazines and shuddered at the thought that anyone would, end quote. In his conversation with Michaud, he described how he had consumed large quantities of alcohol and canvassed the community late at night in search of undraped windows where he could observe women undressing or, quote, whatever else could be seen, end quote. Just like a regular creep. Just He's just general creep level at this point. He's just all about them ankles. I guess. I mean, this, like, was, I mean, this was, I don't even know what year this was. This is after he was in Tacoma, so it was after the 50s. Yeah, I was going to say the 60s, but like, and that that checks out, because like, who doesn't love a good ankle? I guess. I mean, Uh, I love love your ankles. Mm. (gasps) (laughs) Ted also varied the accounts on his social life. He told Michaud and Ainsworth that he chose to be alone as an adolescent because he was unable to understand interpersonal relationships. He claimed that he had no natural sense of how to develop friendships. Quote, I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what underlay social interactions. End quote. Classmates from Woodrow Wilson High School told Ann Rule, however, that Ted was well-known and well-liked and that he was a medium-sized fish in a large pond. So, already we've seen two instances of things he said to one person and then things he said to another person. But I'm sure that's not going to be a trend. I'm going to I'm going to get to it like <laughs> towards the end, like the end of the next part of this episode. I was going to say which end, Haley, because there's going to be a few of them. <laughs> the end of this part of this episode uh, of the next episode um, about all of his contradictions, because it gets even more insane towards the end. Um, Good. So snow skiing was Ted's only significant athletic interest, and he used stolen equipment and forged lift tickets. During high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. And when he reached the age of 18, the details of the incidents were expunged from his records, which is customary in Washington state and most other states, like we had spoken about in the Ed Kemper episode. Mm-hmm. Um, although this is a lot less criminal than <laughs> killing your grandparents. But, Very good um, point. Yeah, I, this is, I mean... 
forging lift tickets and being suspected of burglary i would right. assume those things would be expunged from your record as being a dumb child but yeah we'll see i mean um, yeah so now into else- his into his college years after graduating from high school in 1965 ted went to uh, for a year, he went to the University of Puget Sound before he transferred to the University of Washington in 1966 to study Chinese of all things. Oh, good. So he could abduct and murder women there. I guess. In 1967. How, how do you say I took the handles off my bug in Chinese? <laughs> Not the handles. He took the seat out. We'll get to that. Okay. In 1967, he became romantically involved with a UW classmate who is in identified by several pseudonyms in Bundy biographies, but most commonly Stephanie Brooks. In early 1968, he dropped out of college and worked at a series of minimum wage jobs. He also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign, and in August, he attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. Shortly thereafter, uh, Stephanie Brooks ended their relationship and returned to her family home in California, frustrated by what she described as Ted's immaturity and lack of ambition. Psychiatrist and there Dorothy- our story begins. Well, see, that's the thing. Psychiatrist Dorothy Lewis would later pinpoint this as the crisis and, quote, probably the pivotal time in his development, um, though it can be argued that the inclination to kill was there all along. And as I'll get to, there's even stories of, like, um, murders that don't uh, that wouldn't be connected to this. But everyone believes that his uh, rejection from Stephanie Brooks was the thing that, like, started it all. But we'll see. The catalyst, um, if you will. So devastated by Stephanie's rejection, Ted traveled to Colorado and then further east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and and Philadelphia, and enrolled for one semester at Temple University. It was at this time in early 1969, Anne Roll believes that Ted visited the office of the birth records in Burlington and confirmed his true parentage, which is another thing that people think the catalyst is. So... Ted was back in Washington for the fall of 1969 when he met Elizabeth Klopfer, a divorcee from Ogden, Utah, and she's sometimes identified in Bundy literature as Meg Anders, Beth Archer, or Liz Kendall, but I believe Elizabeth Klopfer was her actual name. Uh, She worked as a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and their stormy relationship would continue well past his initial incarceration in Utah in 1976. In mid-1970, Ted was now forced, um, he was focused and goal-oriented, and he enrolled at UW, this time as a psychology major. And he became an honor student and was well-regarded by his professors. In 1971, he took a job at Seattle Suicide Hotline crisis center which is where he met and worked alongside Ann rule and she was a former seattle police officer and aspiring true crime writer at that point who would later write one of the most definitive bundy biographies the stranger beside me which i read fantastic book so good it's Home so much different really knocked it out of the park with that one it's so it's so much different to read like you can read serial killer biographies and like it's whatever it's from interviews and everything but she yeah. knew him and yeah. it's crazy. Like, she tells a couple stories and, like, it's like, oh, 2020, looking back, you'd be like, yeah, that was a red flag. <clears throat> Just a little bit. Yeah. So she saw nothing of Ted's 
disturbing personality at the time and described him as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. And I believe I heard in um, another podcast or another article or something that I had read that she said that if she was a couple years younger or if her daughters were a couple years older, she would uh, set somebody up with Ted. That would have turned out good. Yeah, right. Well, that's the other thing that we'll get to is that he never killed anyone he knew. Okay. So once once, once you meet him and he knows your name, that means he's not going to kill you. (laughs) I'm beginning to learn that I know a lot less about Bundy than I actually thought I did. I got way too into it. Am I qualified for this position? Am I not? I don't know. Stay tuned for part two to find out. (laughs) Maybe I'll shock you with some things. Uh, you're so, already shocking me with things like what the fuck do you mean the handles <laughs> weren't taken out from the inside of the bug no it was the uh the seat was taken out but i'll explain it in a sec so okay. after graduating from uw in 1972 ted joined governor daniel j evans re-election campaign and posing as a college student he shadowed evans opponent uh former governor albert rosalini and recorded his stump speeches for analysis by Evans's team. So after Evans was reelected, Ted was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, who was chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis thought well of Ted and described him as smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system. He was definitely aggressive. Um, and he in was early definitely 19- a believer in something. He's a believer in something, but not really the system. In early 1973, Ted was accepted into the law school of the University of Puget Sound and the University of Utah, despite his mediocre LSAT scores. He got in on the strength of letters for recommendation from Evans, Davis, and several UW psychology professors. During a trip to California on Republican Party business in the summer of 1973, Ted rekindled his relationship with Stephanie Brooks, who marveled at his transformation into a serious, dedicated professional who was seemingly on the cusp of a distinguished legal and political career. So now that he was starting to do something with his life, she was like, "Ooh, time to get in on the ground floor. Oh, tell me more. (laughs) Um, Let's see, where did I go? Uh, He continued to date Elizabeth Clover as well, and neither woman was aware of the other's existence. Casual. What is the difference between the story of a serial killer and a wacky rom-com? Because so far, nothing. Well, he hasn't killed anyone yet, so it's still a rom-com at this point. That's what I'm saying. Like, we could bill something as a rom-com and then just completely 360 and be like, surprise, bitches, it's Bundy. Well, it's about to take a turn in a little bit. So So do those rom-coms. In the fall of 1973, Ted enrolled at the University of Puget Sound Law School and continued courting Stephanie Brooks, who flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They discussed marriage, and at one point he introduced her to Davis as his fiance. In January of 1974, however, he abruptly broke off all contact. Her phone calls and letters went unreturned. And finally, reaching him by phone a month later, Stephanie demanded to know why Ted had ended their relationship without explanation. And in a flat, calm voice, he replied, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. And he hung up on her and she never heard from him ever again. See, like this could have been the best revenge story since Khloe Kardashian's revenge body. But no. Yeah, we gotta is, take it in where a it gets whole like, different. Like if he just dropped it there, like, ugh, that would have been yeah. so good. People still would have been talking about it. It would well, have been later, the next coming of the ice age. But no, 
He later explained, quote, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. Um, but Stephanie, yeah, Stephanie concluded in retrospect that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection in advance as vengeance for the breakup she initiated in 1968. So again, that's healthy. That's kind of just going to be the chorus for the rest of this. It's just that's healthy. Say it with me now, kids. (laughs) So by then, Ted had begun skipping classes at law school. And by April, he had stopped attending class entirely as young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest. The year the murders began, he was the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission and wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. I I have no words for that one. Yeah. That one's <laughs> he gets kind himself, of just, that's a little too... He gets himself so close. That's, that's, that is something yeah. else. That is, that is one sick motherfucker. Yeah. So now we're going to start... With the uh, intense stuff. The raping and pillaging. We'll see. There's no consensus on when or where Ted Bundy began killing women. He told different stories to different people and refused to divulge the specifics of his earliest crimes, even as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens of later murders in the days preceding his execution. He told Nelson that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969 in Ocean City, New Jersey, but did not kill anyone until sometime in 1971 in Seattle. He told psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 1969 while visiting family in Pennsylvania. He hinted but refused to elaborate on a homicide detective, Robert D. Keppel, that he uh, committed a murder in Seattle in 1972 and another in 1973 that involved a hitchhiker near Tumwater, Washington. Ann Rule and Bob Keppel both believe that he might have started killing as a teenager. Um, circumstantial evidence suggested that he abducted and killed an eight-year-old named Anne-Marie Burr of Tacoma when he was 14 in 1961, and this is an allegation that he has repeatedly denied. Yeah, they're going to believe you. Don't worry, Ted. He he told so many things to so many different people that, like, nothing he can say can be, like, definite, like, for sure. He just, he opens his mouth and people are just like, oh, sweet, poor, delusional Teddy. He also just likes the myth of himself. I'm going to get to that. So um, his earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was 27 years old. And by his own admission, he had mastered the necessary skills in the era before DNA profiling to leave minimal incriminating forensic evidence at a crime scene. So let's start with the murder all right let's go <laughs> shortly after midnight on january 4th 1974 that's my dad's birthday uh, Happy around, birthday. <laughs> around the you, time Jim. around the time that he terminated his relationship with stephanie brooks ted had entered the basement apartment of 18 year old karen sparks a dancer at wash a dancer and student at um uw and she's identified as Joni lens or mary adams or terry Caldwell by various different sources, but it was Karen Sparks. After bludgeoning the sleeping woman senseless with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the same rod or a metal speculum, causing extensive internal injuries. I'm sorry. Like, I don't care if it's for women's health or what. There is no place for a speculum. I don't even like that word. I don't like the word. I don't like the tool. I don't like 
the the yeah, any like of it. it. I just mm, mm, yeah. That's um, the one thing I would make illegal if I were president. <laughs> well, she remained unconscious for ten days, but ultimately survived, but with permanent disabilities. In the early morning hours of February 1st, Ted broke into the basement room of Linda Ann Healy, a UW graduate who, undergraduate, who broadcasts morning radio weather reports for skiers. He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots, and carried her away. Which is different than his usual MO, which we'll get to. Okay. I Female mean, college... Where are these Sorry. jeans and boots and shirt from? Like, I mean, are they cute? Or he's like, in, does he have he's no in her style either? He just grabs some shit. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, does he know how to put an outfit together? Like, probably I mean, not. Maybe this is why the brown-haired girl broke up with him most so many years ago because he can't fucking dress a girl to save his life. Mm, maybe. Uh, female college students continued to disappear at a rate of about one per month. And on March 12th, Donna Gail Manson, a 19-year-old student at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, which is 60 miles southwest of Seattle, left her dorm to attend a jazz concert on campus, but never arrived. On April 17th, Suzanne, Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared while on her way to a dorm room after an evening, <clears throat> an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, 110 miles southeast of Seattle. Two female Central Washington students later came forward to report encounters, one on the night of Rancourt's disappearance, the other three nights earlier, with a man wearing an arm sling asking for help carrying a load of books to his either brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. On May 6, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dorm at Oregon State University in Gravallis, 260 miles south of Seattle, to have coffee with friends at the Student Union Building, but she never arrived. Detective from the King County... <clears throat> detectives from the king county sheriff's office and the seattle police department grew increasingly concerned there was no significant physical evidence and the missing women had little in common apart from being young attractive white college students with long hair parted down the middle on january 1st brenda carol ball 22 disappeared after leaving the flame tavern in Buren, Washington, near Seattle Tacoma International Airport. She was last seen in the parking lot talking to a brown haired man with his arm in a sling. In the early hours of June 11th, UW student George Ann Hawkins vanished while walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dorm and her sorority house. The next morning, three Seattle homicide detectives and criminologists combed the entire alleyway on their hands and knees, finding nothing. After Hawkins' disappearance was publicized, witnesses came forward to report seeing a man that night who was in the alley behind the nearby dorm. He was on crutches with a leg in, his ca in a cast and struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman recalled that the man had asked to help carry the briefcase to his car, which was a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. Starting, dun, dun, to, see, <laughs> starting to see a trend. During Follow this the period, bug, kids. <laughs> yeah, right. During this period, Ted was working in Olympia at the Washington State Department of Emergency Services, a government agency involved in the search for the missing women. There, he met and dated Carol Ann Boone, a twice-divorced mother of two who, six years later, would play a very important role in the final phase of his life. And who will need therapy for the rest of her life. We're teasing that bit. 
Uh, oh, are we teasing that bit specifically? Because that's no, not what I. Oh, we're teasing okay. the bit. We're teasing the bit that she's very important later on. So remember her name. Oh, okay. I was like, I don't <laughs> think we need to tease that she's going to need therapy. I think no, I might need obvious. therapy just after hearing this episode. But Anyone that's fine. that dated him needs therapy. Yes. Yes. Reports of the six missing women and Sparks' brutal beating appeared prominently in newspapers and on television throughout Washington and Oregon. Fear spread among the population. Hitchhiking by young women dropped sharply. Pressure mounted on law enforcement agencies and the shortage of physical evidence seemed was severely hampering them. Police could not provide reports with the little information that was available for fear of compromising the investigation. Further similarities between the victims were noted. The disappearances all took place at night, usually near ongoing construction work, within a week of midterm or final exams, and all of the victims were wearing slacks or blue jeans, and most of the crime scenes, um, there were sightings of a man wearing a cast or sling and driving a brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. Now, wait, Haley, wasn't there hmm. also a bit about how it it affected um, women's trends in terms of women with brown hair parted down the middle were, like, dying Yeah, their once hair it started, and... like, I don't know if they released that detail at this point, but oh, there was okay. a point where um, it started to become known that the brown, long brown hair parted down the middle and people would cut their hair. It's the same thing that happened with the, um, like the Son of Sam murders in... Yeah new york right that uh he was going after like a specific type type he had so then a type people started, okay everybody yeah. has a type i have a type you have a type well my, my type is musician Ted's later gonna deny type that, is that there was ever a type all right sure but we'll see so here's here's the big one that um this is the the one that like when i first heard it just floored me it's crazy so the Pacific Northwest murders culminated on Sunday, July 14th, with the broad daylight abductions of two women from a crowded beach at Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah, which is 20 miles east of Seattle. Five female witnesses described an attractive young man wearing a white tennis outfit with his left arm in a sling, speaking with a slight accent, perhaps Canadian or British. Weird. Uh, he introduced himself as Ted. And then he asked for their help unloading a sailboat from his tan or bronze-colored Volkswagen Beetle. Okay, for wait. How do you confuse English and Canadian? I don't fucking know. Like they're they're completely like they're completely different accents. Like one know, is like hello, Godnah, and the other one is just like hello. Well, would you like accent. some free health care? Like completely different they said they said a slight accent so maybe it was just but like he i don't know he was just putting on some it's fucking weird it's like governor versus a boot <laughs> like it it's they're different they're so different i like, don't think that's the main issue uh, here i think here. the main <laughs> issue is that he killed people but yes and I'm also introduce himself as tan he yes. didn't come up with a nickname. It was just, well, yep, no, this Ted. I mean, you've got to be friendly. You've got to get to know the people. I mean, he's got a type. I guess. So four of the women refused. One accompanied him as far as his car, saw that there was no sailboat, and fled. Good for her. That girl was using her thinking tools. Right? Three additional witnesses saw him approach Janice Ann Ott, who was 23, and a probation caseworker at the King County Juvenile Court, um, they saw her talk to Ted about the sailboat story, and they watched her leave the beach with him. 
About four hours later, Denise Marie Nusland, a 19-year-old woman who was studying to become a computer programmer, left a picnic to go to the restroom and never returned. Ted told Stephen Michaud that Ott was still alive when he returned with Nusland, and that one was forced to watch the other as the other was murdered. But oh, he later denied nice. that in an interview with Lewis on the eve of his execution. Good. 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 Yeah, he's just... Nice. Nice. He's just a stand-up guy. Hold on, I'm trying to make this I, font bigger on my thing because I keep taking weird pauses. you're an old lady. <laughs> Shut up! Because you're, you're an old biddy. Haley's going to be closer to her 30s than she's going to be to her teens next month, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. I'm going to be an old bitch. I'm still young and beautiful. Shut up. (laughs) Now that I lost my fucking place. You're welcome. Shut up. (laughs) That big font really did help you, huh? I, I lost my spot. Now I'm back. So the King County Police were finally provided with a detailed description of the suspect and his car, and they posted flyers throughout the Seattle area. A composite sketch was printed in regional newspapers and broadcast on local television stations. Elizabeth Klopfer, Ann Rule, a DES employee, and a UW psychology professor all recognized the profile, the sketch, and the car, and reported Ted Bundy as a possible suspect. But detectives who were receiving up to 200 tips per day thought it was unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could be the perpetrator. <laughs> bitch, you thought. Yeah. On September 6th, two grouse hunters stumbled across the skeletal remains of Ott and Nasland near a service road in Issaquah, two miles east of Lake Sammamish State Park. An extra femur and several vertebrae were found at the site and were later identified by Ted as George Ann Hawkins. Six months later, forestry student from Green River Community College discovered the skulls and mandibles of Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball on Taylor Mountain, where Ted frequently hiked just east of Issaquah. Uh, Manson's remains were never recovered, which is very sad. Yeah, no, that is There's no closure for her family. Right. Uh, So then Ed took a little trip. In August of 1974, Ted received a second acceptance from the University of uh, the University of Utah Law School and moved to Salt Lake City, leaving Elizabeth Clover in Seattle. When he called, <coughs> sorry, that's fine. While he <laughs> while he called her often, he dated at least a dozen other women. When he studied the first year law curriculum a second time, he was devastated to find out that other students had something more intellectual capacity than he did. He found that classes were completely incomprehensible, and it was a great disappointment to me, he said. Other people are smart. That's too bad. Wait. I didn't try at all, and now I'm stupid. You poor muffin head. Whatever. It must be so hard being a straight white male. (laughs) He got so frustrated he just had to go kill people again. A string of new homicides began the following month, including two that would remain undiscovered until Ted confessed to them shortly before his execution. On September 2nd, he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho and then either disposed of the remains immediately by a nearby river or returned the next day to photograph and dismember the corpse. On October 2nd, your boyfriend's birthday. He I am um, also today. 
Today what? is also my boyfriend's birthday. Oh no, shit. No, this it's isn't not. coming out on the second. This isn't coming out on the second. You dumb bitch. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm like, Ted Bundy wouldn't kill me because I fit his MO. Ted Bundy would kill me because it would be a service to the rest of the human race. But anyway. No. <laughs> so on October 2nd, which is not today, you see 16 year old Nancy Wilcox. <laughs> no. Uh, Nancy Wilcox in Holiday, a suburb of Salt Lake City, and dragged her into a wooded area intending to de-escalate his pathological urges, uh, as he claimed, by raping and then releasing her. But he accidentally strangled her, he said, in the Whoops. process of trying to silence her screams. Yeah, that seems like He was just trying like to a... be a nice guy. Like, I mean, he... He just, all he wanted was for her to be quiet for, like, two yeah. seconds. And then two seconds turned into, like, 20 minutes. And then, you and know. And then death. Yeah. It could happen to anybody. Uh, unfortunately. <laughs> her remains were buried near Capitol Reef National Park, some 200 miles south of Holiday, and they were actually never found. That's On October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, a 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Midvale which is another Salt Lake City suburb, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. Her nude body was found in a nearby mountainous area nine days later. Postmortem examination indicated that she may have remained alive for up to seven days following her disappearance. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's gross. That, On October 31st, uh, Laura and Ames... I probably Aime, said this before, but fuck this guy. Yeah, we're going to be saying that for I the know. rest of the time. Yeah, no, I know. On October 31st, Laura Ann Aim, also 17, disappeared 25 miles south of Lehigh after leaving a cafe just after midnight. Her naked body was found by hikers nine miles to the northeast in American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving Day. Both women Good. had been beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. Years later, Ted described his postmortem rituals with the corpses of Smith and Aim, including shampooing their hair and applying makeup. Like I said, it depends. How good was he at this? Like, did he get all of the what like shampoo a fucking out? Creep. Does he know how to do a good cat eye? Like, I have no fucking clue. Something tells me no, which makes that. him even more of a monster. Yeah, right. I've uh, seen those. My boyfriend does my makeup YouTube videos, and they never end well. No, no. What if your killer does your makeup they video? They don't. Can we do one of those, please? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I vote you to be the one that gets murdered. <laughs> I mean, I thought we already decided on that. <laughs> I thought that was a given, but okay. For posterity's <laughs> sake, let's make it official. All right, let's That'll do it That'll be now. great for ratings. <laughs> <laughs> what? Who's that in my closet? <laughs> in the late afternoon of November 8th, Ted approached 18-year-old telephone operator Carol Durant at Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah, less than a mile from the Midvale restaurant where Melissa Smith was last seen. He identified himself as Officer Roseland, finally getting a fake name, finally. Oh, yeah. Long time coming. Of the Murray County Police Department, and he told Durant that someone had attempted to break into her car. He asked her to attempt, accompany him to the station to file a complaint. When uh, Durant pointed out to Ted that he was driving on a road that did not lead to the police station, he immediately pulled onto the shoulder and attempted to handcuff her. During their struggle, he accidentally fastened both handcuffs to the same wrist, and Durant was able to open the car door and escape. Good for her. Yeah, right. Get uh, the later fuck that out evening. Of there. Yeah. 
Later that evening, Deborah Jean Kent, a 17-year-old student at Viewmont High School in Bountiful, 19 miles north of Murray, disappeared after leaving a theater production at the school to pick up her brother. The school's drama teacher and a student told police that a quote-unquote stranger had asked each of them to come out to the parking lot to identify a car. Another student later saw the same man pacing near the rear of the auditorium, and the drama teacher spotted him again shortly before the end of the play. Outside the auditorium, investigators found a key that unlocked the handcuffs that were removed from Carol DeRanche's wrist. Oh, nice. Yeah. In November, Elizabeth Colfer called King County Police a second time after she read that women were now disappearing in towns surrounding Salt Lake City. Detective Randy Hirschmeyer, I think that's what it is, Hirschmeyer, of the Major Crimes Division... Yeah, right. Uh, the Major Crimes Division interviewed her in detail. By then, Ted had risen considerably in the King County hierarchy of suspicion, but the Lake Sammamish witnesses, considered most reliable by detectives, failed to identify him in a photo lineup. In December, Elizabeth called the Salt Lake City County Sheriff's Office and repeated her suspicions. Ted's name had been added to their list of suspects, but at the time, no credible evidence linked him to the Utah crimes. In January of 1975, Ted returned to Seattle after his final exams and spent a week with Elizabeth, who did not tell him that she had reported him to the the police on three separate occasions. She made plans to visit him in Salt Lake City in August. So I think my boyfriend's a murderer three times, but also... But, like, he um, does a really good cat eye, so I think I'm going to keep him around for a while. I want to go to Salt Lake City. It's every time I hear Salt Lake City, I think of the song from Book of Mormon. Where yes. it's, uh, it just, it, it rings in my you head. You just think of Mormons. No, I don't think of Mormons. I think of what's Which will connect back to the Bundy in a second. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> so in 1975, Ted shifted much of his criminal activity eastward from his base in Utah to Colorado. On January 12th, a 23-year-old registered nurse named Karen Eileen Campbell disappeared while walking down a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room at the Wildwood Inn. It was something like... 20 feet and she just went missing which is fucking crazy Good. and this was in snowmass village about 400 miles southeast of salt lake city um her nude body was found a month later next to a dirt road just outside the resort she had been killed by blows to the head from a blunt instrument that left distinctive linear grooves depressions in her skull and her body also bore deep cuts from the sharp weapon Hundred miles northeast of Snowmass on March 15th, Vale ski instructor Julie Cunningham, who was 26, disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend. And Ted later told Colorado investigators that he approached Cunningham on crutches and asked her to help carry his ski boots to his car. Why was he on crutches and also carrying ski boots? Yeah, yeah, very good question. That's also the problem with the Carol Durange thing is that he's like, I'm an officer. I'm an officer, I'm in plain clothes, which, I mean, can happen, but I also drive a fucking Volkswagen bug. Yeah, what police officer <laughs> that you also, know of? And also, he's like, come with me, someone was trying to break into your car. Like, how the fuck do you know what car I have? How do all of these things happen at once, is my question. Right? Like, there was so many, there was at least five dumb things before she was smart enough to, like, ditch and get out of the car. Good. Yeah. But anyway, so he approached her, asked to uh, carry the ski boots to the car, and that's where he clubbed, handcuffed her, and assaulted her and strangled her at a secondary site near Rifle, Colorado. 
Good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Weeks later, he made the six-hour drive from Salt Lake City to revisit the remains. That's commitment. That's, that's... It's something. Something, yeah. <laughs> that is that. Uh, that is something. Denise Lynn Alverson, Alverson, who was 25, disappeared near the Utah-Colorado border in Grand Junction on April 6th while riding her bicycle to her parents' house. Her bike and sandals were found under a viaduct near the railroad bridge. On May 6th, Ted Lord 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver from Alameda Junior High School in Ponticello, Idaho, I think is what it is, um, which is 160 miles north of Salt Lake City. He drowned and then sexually assaulted her in his hotel room before disposing of her body in a river north of Ponticello, possibly the Snake River. Also, I'm giving all these measurements of the distances away to show how far out of his way he's going to go. How far he'll go, as Moana says. Yes. Which is no one knows quite far. how far he'll go. Well, you know, a couple but, hours. Yeah. In mid-May, three of Ted's Washington State DES coworkers, including Carol Ann Boone, visited him in Salt Lake City and stayed for a week at his apartment. Ted subsequently spent a week in Seattle with Elizabeth in early June, and they discussed getting married the following Christmas. Oh, how idyllic! Oh, lovely, darling. Again, <laughs> I've I've murdered countless women, but you know what would be really great? You know, if you grand? became Mrs. I've murdered countless women. <laughs> um, again, Elizabeth n- made no mentions of her multiple discussions with King County Police and the Salt Lake City County Sheriff's Office, and Ted disclosed neither his ongoing relationship with Carol Ann Boone nor a concurrent romance with a Utah law student known as various accounts as Kim Andrews or Sharon Orr. So he had a couple ladies going on. He he had some tail. He he was way <laughs> that phrase. <laughs> so do I. That was horrible. But I was like, what is a seventies term? <laughs> um, that was the first thing I could think. Of. That was gross. On June twenty eighth, I should get murdered. <laughs> Don't even say that. <laughs> on June twenty eighth. Uh, Susan Curtis vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo, 45 miles south of Salt Lake City. Curtis's murder became Ted's last confession, tape recorded moments before he entered the execution chamber. The bodies of Wilcox, Kent, Cunningham, Culver, Curtis, and Oliverson were never recovered. So <laughs> here's, where, here's where things get a little weird. In August or September of 1975, Ted was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Isn't that weird? That's... What? (laughs) Yeah. And he was never an active participant in services and ignored most of the church's restrictions. No, really? Why would he want to do that then? I don't know, because he's fucking Ted Bundy. Like, I mean, does he need a reason? Why does a (laughs) relatively, like, prolific serial killer of all why is his escape vehicle a vw beetle like i why mean he, he's, he does a beetle? lot of questionable things yeah why did he try to major in chinese and then psychology and then law <laughs> and then mormonism apparently whatever well he would later be excommunicated Fine. by the lds church following his 1976 kidnap conviction oh geez that must have been tough for them oh god that must have when been a was- tough decision 
when asked his religious preference after his arrest, Ted answered Methodist, the religion of his childhood. So, then I don't know, what? I guess... Because you know I what, guess... those bastards went so far as to excommunicate him? Well, you know what, he's excommunicating them right back. I guess the LDS church just was like, whoops, <laughs> sorry about that one. <laughs> In Washington state, investigators were still struggling to analyze the Pacific Northwest murder spree that ended just as abruptly as it had began. In an effort to make sense of an overwhelming mass of data, they resorted to the then innovative strategy of compiling a database. They used the King County payroll computer, a huge primitive machine by contemporary standards, but it was the only one available for their use. After inputting many lists that they had compiled, classmates, acquaintances of each of the victims, Volkswagen owners named Ted, known sex offenders, and so on, they queried the computer for coincidences. Out of thousands of names, 26 turn up on four separate lists. One of them was Ted. All right. But no, it couldn't be him. He's a clean yeah. cut guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, Detectives also manually compiled a list of their 100 best suspects, and Ted was on that list as well. And All he right, was good. literally at the top of the pile of suspects when word came from Utah of his arrest. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. that's crazy. So we're getting into his first arrest now. Notice I said first. Yeah. On August 16th, 1975, Ted was arrested by a Utah Highway Patrol officer in Granger, another Salt Lake City suburb. The officer had observed Ted cruising in a residential area in the pre-dawn hours. Ted had fled the area at high speed after seeing the patrol car. The officer searched the car after he noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats. He found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. Oh, but he's a nice upstanding man. I'm sure yeah, that there's a with logical just like a reason casual, for that. Anyone with a casual ski mask and crowbar in their car... No. He's in a play no. about a psychotic killer. That's all. I guess. He's trying to get into the role, just like Winona Ryder when she's shoplifted from Nordstrom. It's just, mm. it's method. Well, he has, he has excuses for everything. He explained that the ski mask was for skiing, obviously, and that he had found the handcuffs in a dumpster and the rest were just common household items. Why does How a grown-ass man have pantyhose? Why yeah, right. does uh, a grown ass man and it was a have mask. pantyhose? That's it was even... a mask made out of pantyhose. Please it wasn't tell just me. pantyhose. Please tell me they didn't let him go and be like, oh, okay. No, here we go. So, however, Detective Jerry Thompson remembered a similar suspect and car description from the November 1974 Durant kidnapping, which matched, it matched Ted's name from Elizabeth's December 1974 call. So this Thank guy is you. actually remembering some shit. <laughs> Glad someone Ted's, fucking is. Yeah, right. In search of Ted's apartment, police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the Wildwood Inn, which is where um, Karen Campbell was killed. Yes. Uh, and a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful, where Deborah Kent had disappeared. So, but apparently, the police didn't have sufficient evidence to detain Ted. Oh, and course. he was released on his own reconnaissance. Oh, yeah. And I'm yeah. sure that made him so happy. And he was like, you know what? I've learned my lesson. I'll never yeah. chill again. <laughs> well, he said later that the searchers had missed a collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims. And he destroyed the photographs after he was released. What? So just a great search all around. Like, how do you miss? <sighs> I don't know. 
Okay. <laughs> Salt Lake okay. City Police. Salt Lake City Police placed Ted on 24-hour surveillance, and Detective Thompson flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Elizabeth. She had told them that in the year prior to Ted's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she, quote, couldn't understand in Ted's apartment. Like what? And, you mean like and her house. pantyhose with a face cut out of it? Well, the items included crutches, a bag of plaster of Paris that he admitted stealing from a medical supply house, a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Additional objects included what? surgical gloves, an oriental knife in a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment, and a sack full of women's clothing. The fuck? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. If I woke up one morning and... I found There's just all other of this. bitches' clothes. Yeah, that alone <laughs> would have been like this story would have had a completely different ending. Yeah, whatever. Um, so Ted was perpetually in debt, and Elizabeth suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significance that he had possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo, he warned her, "Quote: If you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck." <gasps> you don't talk to a woman like that. Yeah, I know that he's done terrible things, but you don't <laughs> talk to a person like that. Yeah. She said that Ted became very so upset much for that when wedding. she considered Yeah. I guess it's Ted off. became very upset when she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted down the middle. Does he kiss his mother sister with that mouth? I'm sorry, I'm still <laughs> stuck on this. I'm still stuck on it. Like that's that's <laughs> She would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night to find him under the bed covers with a flashlight examining her body. That's she's that's still that's she's healthy. still considered marrying him. That's I mean, I know they say love is blind, but like, uh, I don't like I mean, it. Uh, that's just, there's just red flags popping up everywhere. Like, yeah. that's when you, that's when you run. Well, it, it still gets worse. He kept the lug wrench taped halfway up the handle in the trunk of her car, another Volkswagen Beetle, which he often borrowed, quote, for protection. The detectives confirmed that Ted had not been with Elizabeth on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished nor on the day that ott and naslin were abducted shortly thereafter elizabeth was interviewed by seattle homicide detective kathy mcchesney and learned of the existence of stephanie brooks and their brief engagement to ted around christmas of 1973 is this where so that movie with cameron Ted diaz the other woman teenager utah police impounded it and the fbi technicians dismantled and searched it good well yeah uh, they found hairs matching samples obtained from Karen Campbell's body. Later, they also identified hair strands microscopically, microscopically indistinguishable from those of Melissa Smith and Carol Deranch. FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims who had never met one another would be, quote, a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah. So on October 2nd, also Michael's birthday, Hi. also not today. Love you. Detectives yeah, no, put, I know, I know. <laughs> detectives <laughs> put Ted into a lineup, and Durant immediately identified him as Officer Roseland. In the same lineup, witnesses from Bountiful picked him out as the stranger who had lurked around the high school auditorium. He was insufficient. There was insufficient evidence to link him to Deborah Kent, whose body was never found, but more than enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempting to an attempted criminal assault in the Deranch case. 
He was freed on $15,000 bail paid by his parents and spent most of the time between indictment uh, and trial in Seattle living at Elizabeth's house. What? Seattle police had insufficient evidence. Wait, she still took him He was allowed to go. On no, bail. I'm more like, uh, yeah, that's fine. He, that's uh, that's fine. Right. We're going to learn she, more. She still took him back? Yeah, he's got a weird thing with, with women he dates. Um, I'm starting to think the women aren't so normal either. Oh, no, there's definitely weird women involved in this case, which we'll get to. Oh, my God. <laughs> Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him with the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. Quote, when Ted and I stepped onto the porch to go somewhere, so many unmarked police cars started up that it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500. End quote. That's what Elizabeth said. Broom, broom. Yeah. In November, the three principal Ted Bundy investigators, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado, met in Aspen, uh, Colorado, and exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. While officials left the meeting, later known as the Aspen Summit, convinced that Ted was the murderer, they sought and agreed that more hard evidence would be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders. Well, yeah. Yeah. On February 23rd, 1976, Ted stood trial for the Durant kidnapping. On the evidence, uh, sorry, on the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, Ted waived his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. On March 1st, after a four-day bench trial and weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. On June 30th, he was sentenced to serve a minimum of one to a maximum of 15 years in Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, which included road maps, airline schedules, and a social security card. He spent several weeks in solitary confinement because of this, and later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Karen Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 1977. In On June 7th, 1977, Ted was transported 40 miles from Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. He had elected to serve as his own attorney, and as such, he was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. During the recess, he asked to visit the courthouse law library to research his case. Ted was concealed behind a bookcase when he opened a window and jumped from the second story, spraining his right ankle as he landed. After shedding an outer layer of clothes, he walked through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on the outskirts, then hiked southward into Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. He followed... Uh, the following day, he left the cabin and continued southward towards the town of Crested Butte, but later became lost in the forest because he's not a mountain man. No, really? With a face like that? No. <laughs> For two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain, missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. On January 10th, he broke into a camping trailer at Maroon Lake, 10 miles south of Aspen, taking food and a ski parka, but instead of continuing southward he walked back towards aspen eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way three days later he stole a car at the edge of the aspen golf course 
Cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant pain from his sprained ankle, he drove back to Aspen, where two police officers noticed the car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled it over. He had been a fugitive for six days. That's pretty and, damn lucky. Yeah, I'm right? not gonna lie. He pretty much he pretty much just gave himself back though, because he went back to Aspen. Well, yeah, because <coughs> he he probably saw some shit in that forest. Are you kidding yeah. me? Like yeah. e- even sociopaths aren't necessarily cut out for the forest, okay? I guess. In the car that he was um that he had stolen, there were maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Karen Campbell's body as his own attorney Ted had rights of discovery, indicating that his escape was not a spontaneous act, but it had been planned. So back in jail in Glenwood Springs, Ted ignored the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. The case against him, already weak at best, was deteriorating steadily as pretrial motions consistently resolved in his favor and significant bits of evidence were ruled inadmissible. Quote, more rational defendant might have realized that he stood a good chance of acquittal and that beating the murder charge in Colorado would probably have dissuaded other prosecutors with as little as a year and a half to serve for the Durant conviction. Had Ted persevered, he could have been a free man, end quote. But um, no. No. Instead, Ted assembled a new escape plan. He acquired a detailed floor plan of the jail and a hacksaw blade from another inmate and accumulated $500 in cash smuggled in over a six-month period, he later said, by visitors, Carol Ann Boone in particular. During the evenings, what? while other prisoners... Yeah. He still had people visiting him he ladies still had bitches yeah yeah so during the evenings when other prisoners were showering he saw a hole about one foot square between the steel reinforcing bars in his cell ceiling and having lost 35 pounds he was able to wriggle through uh into the crawl space above in the weeks that followed he made a series of practice runs exploring the space multiple reports of an informant uh were of movement within the ceiling during the night and went uninvestigated. By late 1977, Ted's impending trial had become a media circus in the small town of Aspen, so Ted filed a motion for a change of venue to Denver. On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request, but to Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and the nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Ted piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body, and climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife, changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet, and walked out the front door. This man has the balls. Like, I just... Yeah. Oh God! Oh God! Like he just, mm-hmm. He did that. Yeah. So after stealing Sometimes a car, it'd de- be like that. Yeah. <laughs> Ted drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car soon broke down in the mountains on Interstate 70. A passing motorist gave him a ride to Vail, 60 miles to the east. From there, he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. In Gledwood Springs, the jail's skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon on December 31st, more than 17 hours later. By then, Ted was already in Chicago. And that's where we're going to leave off. Oh, man. For now. Yes. Then we're going to pick up 
in just the craziest situation when Ted goes to Florida, which is just, it's, it's madness. It's like nothing you've ever heard. It's insane. I mean, a lot of this is apparently like nothing I've ever heard because a lot of this is new to me, which is a little bit embarrassing, but that's okay. It's such a long story. There's so many things. That's probably There's it so too, many because details. there is so much information out there. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's but yeah, just, yeah, so that's what we got for today. And we're going to release another episode on next week. Thursday. No, just Thursday. kidding. Thursday. <laughs> this is coming out on Tuesday. No, I'm just, I had a brief moment where I forgot that we were doing two episodes a week. Just ignore yeah. me. Just let me go. Please murder me. I'm just double checking the schedule to make sure I'm not wrong. No, this is coming out on a Tuesday, and then the on next a episode Tuesday. is coming out on Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just double That's checking. what I said, yeah. Haley. God. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. So. This is my favorite thing, so I will never get tired of talking about it. That's fine. I'm surprised we didn't go that far over. I'm not. <laughs> you said, I thought you it was said gonna be from the longer. beginning that you were going to be like going like a mile a minute. So That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm rushing to get to the next part. <sighs> why don't you do why don't you do the plugs? Oh, okay. Um, oh, if you insist. <laughs> I'm not going to be around for much longer anyway because I've allowed myself to be murdered at least 6 times now, so. Mhm. Um, all right. Yeah, but if you want to hear more, see more, interact with us do what do whatever you want kill me whatever um you can see all of the info that we have on ted bundy and the cases in which he's involved at our website crimeculturepod.tumblr.com and on there it's is crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com it's crimeculturepod at gmail if you want to email us that's what i was thinking of and sorry right. i usually do the plugs Caitlin's I know. just bad at this. I'm just the face. I'm just, I, I'm the beauty. You've She's got quite a face for radio. You can go fuck. You know what? This, <laughs> uh, this is over. No one's, get, there's not going to be a part two. This is it. We're done oh, there here. Is. There's We're so done many here. spooky things happening. Why you got to do me like that? Crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com Crimeculturepod at gmail.com Yeet. Find all of our social media on the on website. On the website, which is t- crimeculturepodcast at tumblr.com. Dot tumblr.com. <laughs> Fuck me. Fuck me. <laughs> it's, you know what it is? It's, it's right. late. We'll get it right next time. I gorged myself on Chinese food before we started recording this. So I'm basically in food it's coma whatever, right now. Like, I'm waiting to get the chicken sweats. And, like, I just... I didn't ask for this, man. I just... Okay. I just want to eat some Tim Tams. See you on Thursday. See you next Thursday. Bye. Bye.